people of God in Christ, this morning we continue in our study of the armor of God. Uh, of the six pieces of armor itemized by the Apostle Paul, last time we looked at the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, or not all last time, but in the past, uh, and the gospel of peace as shoes for our feet. And so we've had uh, uh, a number of sermons now to get into the flow of this passage, we might call it. In, in particular, let's recall that by starting with the belt of truth, uh, Paul sets the context for the whole armor of God. Uh, what, is, what is Paul talking about in this passage? Is this just flowery language and rah-rah inspiration, or does Paul mean something here? Uh, By starting with a belt of truth, Paul shows us that he definitely means something here. Uh, Each of these pieces of armor must be understood within the full context of God's truth, that is, his holy word. And so it is that we come to understand the breastplate of righteousness, this from last time, Uh, We understand the breastplate of righteousness as the righteousness of Christ imputed to those who look to him in faith. Paul is not calling us to put on our own obedience in the battle for obedience. Uh, It seems to me that that would make little sense. Uh, Instead, the breastplate of righteousness is our knowledge and remembrance, our, our bold and joyful claim to the perfect obedience of Christ credited to us by faith. In the face of temptation, we say, no, uh, I am righteous in Christ, and, and I will behave accordingly. In the face of accusation from the evil one, we say, yes, I, I am a great sinner, but Christ is the greater Savior, and I wear the white robe of his righteousness. And in the face of failure, as we repent and turn back, perhaps for the hundredth time, we rejoice that, as God's word says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel of peace, which is is like shoes for our feet, preparing us to be ready in every day to follow Christ. Clearly, there is considerable overlap between each of these pieces of armor. The truth of God's word is exactly the message of justification by faith, the gift of righteousness to those who believe in in Christ, and the message of justification is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that gives us a deep peace in our hearts. So let none of us say, uh, you know, don't give me doctrine, uh, big words like justification, Uh, They're just too cold and and too hard for me. To dispense with doctrine is to dispense with truth, God's truth, the truth of the gospel. And, and the And it's the gospel and the righteousness that is by faith that protects us and gives us peace in our hearts and readiness for our feet.
So this by way of review to bring us back into context and back up to speed because uh, this time uh, let's look at the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. Uh, within Paul's inventory of, of armor, of armor, uh, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation as we continue uh, to put on the armor of God. But first, let's consider again the enemy we face. And let's do so because this is what the text would prompt us to do. We have already heard the somewhat famous clarification that, uh, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need to be careful on, on two fronts. First, that we, um, uh, that we be careful not to fail to, to take the world's opposition seriously. Satan has captured mankind, ourselves included, except that we have been redeemed. That's what, uh, that's what happened in the, in the Garden of Eden by the sin of Adam and Eve and the fall of mankind. Satan, Satan captured mankind, uh, and, and including us, and, and as his possession and even as his slaves. This is the teaching of Scripture. But that's what happened then at the cross of Christ and by his resurrection. That redemption came, the buying back of sinners the setting free of those for whom Christ died. But, however, we also must not forget that indeed God is a redeeming God, that as much opposition as we might receive from people, it is finally Satan who opposes us. And among those who oppose us, there are those yet for whom Christ died. There are yet, among those who oppose us, those who were redeemed at the cross and who will yet be saved. Remember, remember the Apostle Paul and, and his, his bitter opposition to Christ and, and yet his conversion. Remember also uh, the words of Christ to Paul, uh, recorded in Acts 18, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. The word of Christ came in a vision to Paul, and it was concerning his ministry to the city of Corinth, but the message applies to us that we can be sure that there are many in this city Terre Haute, Indiana, who have already been redeemed, but that redemption just haven't, hasn't been applied to them yet. And it will be applied to them as the church preaches the gospel and as the Spirit works to bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So yes, the world stands in opposition to us. The Apostle Paul knew this better than anybody, perhaps. Yes, we have, we have to be wary of, of unbelievers. We shouldn't go into business with unbelievers, Scripture says, uh, if we can help it. Uh, we are certainly not to enter into marriage knowingly with an unbeliever. Uh, 
But neither are we to forget that we too were slaves to sin and unbelief, but God saved us. And until Christ comes again, God will always be in the business of saving sinners. But what are these these flaming darts? It's quite the image. Uh, there are too many, I think, to name. But maybe uh, maybe we can think in terms of doubt and discouragement. Doubt and discouragement. The broader category, of course, is is temptation. Uh, Satan is the tempter, but doubt and discouragement are the temptation to disbelieve after you have first believed. Here the the starting point is to remember that, that doubt is not the opposite of faith. And doubt, when it comes, is not the end of faith. Doubt and faith exist side by side. Uh, in fact, if, if there were no faith, there could be no doubt. Doubt always comes because there first is faith, faith that is then doubted. So, so don't be alarmed by your doubts uh, as if you are not a believer because of your doubts. In one sense, doubt even confirms that you have faith. But doubt and discouragement come, or when they do, we must take up the shield of faith. So that's the second point, uh, uh, the shield of, of faith. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. But the shield of faith is, is not the first piece of armor over all. So let's put on again that belt of truth. And ask the question, well, what is the truth about faith? What, in other words, what is faith according to the Word of God? The problem that often gives rise to unfaithfulness in the church and in the lives of those who profess to be Christians is the lack of truth. I'm a Christian. I have faith. I believe in God and I know Jesus. But confessions can easily be made while the question of truth remains, what, what is a Christian? How are you defining it? Which God do you believe in, and, and what do you believe about Jesus? And what is faith, after all? We, we need to take our definition of faith, our, our understanding of what faith is, from the Word of God, and only then will it serve as the shield of faith. So let's do that this morning. Let's ask the question, most specifically, what is faith? And I realize right away that uh, I run the risk of offending someone. Uh, Someone might respond by saying, well, that's a little basic, isn't it? Uh, um, What, you you don't think I know my ABCs? But there are certain other long-standing definitions of faith in the church today, and there are those that would claim to have faith and to have uh, possession of faith, in fact, uh, for the better part of their life, but they do not have faith as defined and set forth in God's Word. So I, I beg your indulgence to ask the very basic question, what is true faith? And the first thing that we must note about uh, the faith defined and set forth in God's Word is that it's a matter of faith in Christ. 
It's not enough to believe in God. It's not enough to believe that that God exists, or even that there is a God who created the world. Scripture certainly teaches that God exists and that He is creator of all things. But James 2, verse 17, says uh, that even the demons believe that God exists and, and they shudder. The question is, why do, why do they shudder? And they shudder because they know even more. They, they know that God is holy. They know that He will one day judge the world, including them, and that He will do so in His justice and in His holiness and by His power, and they know that they are doomed. The problem for us is that we are in no better situation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is the Savior whom God has provided because even as a God of justice, justice, holiness, and power, He is also a God of grace, mercy, and compassion for sinners like you and like me. So the need, therefore, is not just for faith in God, believing that there is a God who created the world. The need, and please understand how deep this need is, the need is for faith in Christ. Only through faith in Christ are we saved from our sins, which means saved from the wrath and judgment of God due to us for our sins. Do you have faith in Christ? Think with me about the tragic irony of, uh, of thinking to use some kind of generic faith, simp- simply faith in God to protect us from the evil one when it's actually God himself from whom we need to be protected. Perhaps you've never thought of it that way. We need to be saved by God, make no mistake, but only God himself can save us. We also need to be saved from God. And the way that God himself has provided for sinners to be saved from his judgment for sin is Jesus Christ. And perhaps it sounds like a rather harsh view of God to speak this way, but but it's not that God is, is an angry tyrant. It's that he is a holy and just God. And may each of us come to see, may, may God show us, each of us, this exact truth that, that it will be a matter of justice. God will be acting according to all that is right and fair in the day when he judges the earth. But furthermore, let us understand that true faith is faith in what Christ has done for us by his life and death and resurrection. In other words, even faith in Christ is not yet saving faith and a faith that will protect us until we have the knowledge of the work of Christ and the meaning and significance of his work for our salvation. Sometimes it gets said in the church today, well, we got to get people saved. And we ought to agree with that wholeheartedly except that we need a bit we need to be a bit more specific what do you mean by get people saved 
Well, you know, we we got to get people to confess Christ, to believe in Jesus. And we ought to agree with that. Only, only pressing the matter a bit further and asking, well, which Christ do you mean? And we must teach about Christ so that sinners are able to confess Christ and to get saved. What we're getting at here is that faith requires knowledge. As much as uh, Walt Disney might tell us otherwise, you don't just got to believe. You don't just got to have faith. You need faith in Christ, and you need to know Christ and what He has done to be the Savior that you so desperately need. We need to know that His birth was a matter of unspeakable condescension. Unlike us, Christ did not come into existence by his conception and birth. Instead, John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word is Christ. Philippians 2 says of Christ that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We need to know that his life was not, uh, uh, was not a preliminary to uh, his saving work. His life was just as important as, or in his saving work as his death. Because only by first living a perfectly sinless life was he qualified then to die in the place of sinners even more. It's that life of perfect obedience that he lived that is credited to you. It's the only way you and I can be righteous before God that Christ lived, lived a sinless life even before going to the cross. We need to know that, uh, that his suffering was a, a matter of bearing in his body and soul the blow of God's judgment that we deserved. We need to know that uh, his death, therefore his, his atoning death, is our salvation. It, uh, it is the word atonement or propitiation. Uh, are, are these just theological words that, that some people are interested in, but maybe not you? No, these are, these are words of true faith. These are the words that give us the knowledge that we need for a deep, protective faith in Jesus Christ. Remember that we are talking here about the shield of faith. When it comes to understanding that faith requires knowledge, you know where I'm going probably. The Heidelberg Catechism exhibits one of its, uh, one of its greatest strengths because after it begins with that famous first question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? It asks the second question, just as strong and meaningful as the first. Uh, what must you know? My only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the entire rest of the catechism is a matter of teaching what we must know about God, about Christ, about ourselves as sinners, 
and yet as saints in Christ Jesus, and all by his finished work for our salvation. So finally, to define faith according to God's word, we must consider a a passage of God's word that gives us a, a certain straightforward definition of faith. And that's Hebrews 11, verse 1, which says, Now faith is... Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is being sure of the things that we hope for as believers in Christ and being absolutely certain that these things are told us in God's word. And the verses that follow make it clear that these things about which we are sure are both the things of past history as well as the future, including the eternal future of heaven as a new creation belonging to us by our faith in Christ. So what this means is that even as we live in the present, we always have our minds set upon the Word of God as the historical record of the glorious past, and we always live in expectation for the future, for what will yet be when Christ comes again. We may be concerned about tomorrow, and that's not a wrong concern. But even as we're concerned about tomorrow or anything that may happen this week, it must be on the basis of our certainty by the promises of God in Christ that all eternity belongs to us. Surely we can understand then why faith is a shield and how it serves to protect us in the face of temptation. How does temptation come except by forgetting the past and losing sight of the future? Temptation and sin are a matter of getting whatever you can get now rather than remembering what Christ has done for you in history and what is in store for you by the promises of God in Christ. So steal it, lie, cheat, grab it, you know, enjoy the pleasures of sin now. That's our temptation rather than remembering the past and waiting for the glorious future that is ours in Jesus Christ. I think this is a good place then to transition to the next point, the, the helmet of salvation. Because by way of the overlap between each piece of the armor of God, we're already getting into the helmet of salvation. Uh, Perhaps there are two reasons why it's the helmet of salvation. First reason is that salvation needs to be what's in our heads, what belongs to us by way of knowledge, remembering what God has done for us in Christ and what he has promised us in Christ is absolutely crucial for obedience and faithfulness. In this respect, we are no different, in no different place than even Old Testament Israel. 
what, what did God say to his people as they were about to enter the promised land? He said, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and olive and, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And how does the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God was saying, in essence, don't forget. Remember, remember what I've done for you. Are we in any different position? Here is the basis. Here is the reason for your obedience to God because He has saved you. Your salvation is from Him. And finally, from Him alone. Remembrance is what we do with our heads. And the remembrance of God's salvation must be upon our minds each day. There are actually three senses of salvation in God's word. Scripture says that as believers in Christ, we have been saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. Titus 3 verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Past tense. Done deal. But 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So here's salvation being completed within us in another sense. And finally, 1 Peter 1.5 says that by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that, uh, that is to be revealed in the last time, and that's a salvation yet to come. So the helmet of salvation is the remembrance, not just of of what has happened in the past, it's also the remembrance that God is at work in us yet today. We are being saved, which doesn't mean that we haven't already been saved, as if we can't be sure of the final outcome. Instead, it's exactly through the conviction that we have been saved, that we must hear the call to faithfulness because one of the reasons to take up obedience in our lives is the knowledge of what God has done and what He is doing in us yet today. Philippians 2 again, verse 12, which I'm sure you know, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, to will, both to will and to, and to work for his good pleasure. Well, the end result is, is that for believers in Christ, disobedience and unfaithfulness run counter to what God is doing, how he is at work within us. Disobedience and unfaithfulness are a matter of grieving the Spirit, as as Ephesians 4, verse 30 says, and do not grieve 
the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of salvation. So once again, you were sealed for the day of salvation. It's not that you need to doubt your salvation in the last day, but as you believe that you were sealed for the last day, the day of redemption, we'll then continue to to live for Christ Notice the past, present, and future sense of salvation in this one verse. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul says that we were sealed. It's a done deal. But he also speaks of a day of redemption. And it's yet to come. And so his call is not to grieve the Spirit. And the opposite of which is to comply with the Spirit and to be moved by the Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit in a life of obedience and faithfulness. I said that there were two reasons why it's the helmet of salvation, and you thought I forgot the second one. Here it is. It's the helmet of salvation because the head is so vulnerable. What we know, what we think, What we remember must be protected just as the head must be protected in battle. A blow to the head will disable, if not kill, a a soldier. And so it is that the knowledge of salvation accomplished, the working out of salvation and the hope of a salvation yet to come must guard and protect our minds. And so this lands us back to the sword of the Spirit, which we covered earlier. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and it's through the Word of God that we wear the helmet of salvation. It's through the Word of God that we take up the shield of faith. In fact, it's through the Word of God that we put on all the other pieces of of armor. So where is God's Word in your life? Where is God's word in your life? The place to start is to see that God's word is your life. Let us not make more space in our lives for the word of God. Let us instead see that God's word is our life. It has been true from the beginning when God spoke and all things came to be. And it's true in the new creation, accomplished again By Christ, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. Where is God's Word in your life? So let our daily study and meditation be in the Word of God. Let it be at our family table so that... Children are learning and setting the pattern in their lives for daily study and meditation in the Word. But let it be the reason that we come to church each Lord's Day. Why are you here? Uh, To worship God, you say. Well, good, but God doesn't need your worship of Him like you need His Word to you. So let us come to hear. Let us come with an open ear. Let us come to church to receive instruction, old and new, 
for learning and for reminder from the Word of God. And so we will take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we will put on the helmet of salvation, and we will be handed by God himself the shield of faith as we go out to live for Christ in yet another week. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have provided us in Christ, by the gospel, the armor that we need to live the Christian life and to live it faithfully and fruitfully for our King, uh, for our Savior, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us, O Lord, to learn and to grow and to be reminded of your truth, of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. May we not turn from the teaching of your word, but see that it is not just important, but imperative, and that we must hear it and know it and live according to this knowledge as we would bear that armor that would protect us throughout our lives. Grant that we would fight and we would conquer. Grant that we would uh, know that we are in Christ and that he is our Savior. Grant that we would indeed live for him. In his name we pray. Amen.